This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. I don't know about you, but I love to know how things got started. How did the United States say decide that all vehicles would be on the right side of the road? Or who was the first person to use a hot air balloon as their around town vehicle? It was Alberto Santos Dumont, by the way. Look that one up. Who did it first? When did we decide to do it that way? And how did things get to be the way they are? Uh, We're going to embark on a new series, one that explains how we, as the Christian church, started doing things the way that we do. When did we go from being a persecuted little sect to a major belief system? Who was the first Christian leader, and how did that turn out for the world? On this show, we've already covered politicians who use their quote-unquote faith as a weapon. Donald Trump, Scott Pruitt, Roy Moore. Across a four-part series, we're going to examine the moment when that was all made possible, with a miracle, a battle, and a new Roman emperor. Before kings sent armies out on crusades, before evangelicals were co-opted into a voting bloc, back when Christianity was the last place you went if you wanted power. It all changed with a man named Constantine. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to see how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Steren, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. To help us tell the story today, we've got David Potter. He's a professor at the University of Michigan and the author of the book, Constantine the Emperor. Christians were not well-liked in ancient Rome. Read the New Testament again and you'll see it everywhere. The events of the New Testament take place while Israel is occupied by Rome. Pontius Pilate worked for them. Paul appeared to a Roman Caesar. He and Peter may have been killed by the Roman Emperor Nero. That empire was very present in the early church. It was an on-again, off-again series of persecutions. Sometimes the rulers liked Christians, and other times they were killed for their beliefs. Why were Christians chosen for persecution? Well, let's give you an example. In the 2nd century AD, we meet Decius and Valerian. Decius had issued an edict ordering all members of the empire, the whole population of the empire, who sacrifice uh, for the good of the empire and obtain a certificate, which caused a great deal of difficulty for Christians who were unwilling to sacrifice. 
Uh, and then in uh, 258, the Emperor Valerian instituted the first empire-wide persecution of the Christians. So let's say you're the leader of the Roman Empire. You get this funny little laurel wreath on your head, and maybe you get to watch some gladiatorial games, you're taking walks through the Forum, and you get to see the Colosseum without all the tourists we get nowadays. And of course, every day is a toga party. You, as the leader of Rome, have a lot of ground to cover. The Roman Empire included Britain and France, all the way to modern Turkey and northern Africa. You have to rule all of that without a telephone. Wherever you're going, there's probably a horse or a boat involved. Communication takes weeks and months. You can't just go on television and make a proclamation like you can today. If you're in charge of all these people, what do you think your biggest concern is? Unity. How do you get all of these diverse peoples to work together? To go to war when you tell them to? What you're looking for is any sign of dissension from among your people. So Decius had issued the command that everybody had to sacrifice to the Roman gods. Roman leaders, of course, were also considered to be gods. So when Decius demanded worship, he may have been training his subjects to obey him. Because he was a god, after all, according to him. Uh, there's the problem. Christians are told explicitly in their teachings not to worship any gods other than their own. That puts early believers in a very difficult position. If you don't worship the Roman gods, then you're going to be killed. If you do, then you're going to be turning your back on your faith. So there's no good way around it. Decius and Valerian made life terrible for Christians. Some would say in an attempt to maintain unity in their ranks. Thankfully, it didn't last forever. Uh, Valerian was then captured by the Persians. You know, I've never said this before, but thank you, Persians. And his son, Gallienus, in 262, issued an edict of toleration. So Christianity was actually a legal religion in the Roman Empire from 262 to the Great Persecution in 303. So both of the bad guys met their end in the end. It was no longer illegal to be a Christian for a while. The effect of these persecutions was this. Nobody with half a brain tried to use Christianity for political gain. You didn't see politicians name-dropping their churches or making speeches about faith in the public square, because if they did, they'd be killed. What this means is that for much of the early church, if you met a person who claimed to be a Christian, then they really believed. If there's any silver lining when it comes to persecution, it's that it refines us as a people. You're either willing to die for your hope in Christ, or you walk away from your faith to save your own neck. And there was more persecution. And I won't bore you with lots of names and dates, but it does not get much better for Christians for quite a long time. Not until we meet a man named Constantine. It was Constantine who eventually changed the pattern of persecution and freedom. Persecution and freedom. We'll talk about him right after this message. Hi, friends. If you like Truce as much as I like making the show, then there are some ways you can help out. Write a review on iTunes, share about us on social media, and consider donating a few dollars. We're now on Patreon, a service that allows you to give a few dollars every month to help out the show. There isn't much in the way of journalism of this kind out there, and we'd like to take the show to the next level. Your regular gift can help make that possible. Check us out on Patreon or follow the link on our website at trucepodcast.com. Now, back to the show. We're back. 
And now it's time to talk about our main man, Constantine. And he didn't start out as a Christian or even favoring them. We're going to look at the story of how he started identifying with a Christian god. Constantine came into power in 306 AD, but at that time, he wasn't the only ruler of Rome. There were four, and they each oversaw a particular area of the empire. Constantine wanted to rule all of it, so he fought his way into power, which is how he began his battle with Maxentius. Now, Maxentius oversaw Italy and northern France. We're talking about this battle because it was during this conflict that Constantine claimed the name of Christ. This one victory literally changed the course of history. But at first, things didn't look so good for Constantine. Maxentius had the advantage. He should have probably won the war uh, by any logical uh, assessment. Every person who tried to attack Rome in the previous century had failed dismally. Maxentius had the advantage, but Constantine pushed through northern Italy. And Constantine simply outmaneuvered everybody. It was one of the most brilliant campaigns uh, waged by a Roman emperor of any period. It was uh, comparable to the kinds of things that Julius Caesar was able to do, uh, or the campaigns of Napoleon at the beginning of the 19th century that established his military reputation. Uh, he managed to divide up the forces of Maxentius and defeat them in detail across northern Italy. And so when he came down to Rome, Maxentius had no choice to but to fight him. Eventually, Constantine made his way to the edge of Rome at a place called the Milvian Bridge, which is just northeast of where the Vatican is today. And you can still visit the bridge. The two competing armies met here, face to face. And there are a few conflicting accounts of what happens next. Here's Gerald Bray. My name is Gerald Bray. I'm research professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. It's part of Samford University. He's going to tell us the legendary account, and I would argue the more fun account of what actually happened on that day, but it is a little iffy. The legend says that he saw a cross in the sky the night before the battle for the city of Rome, uh, and that there was a, a, an inscription which said, uh, in this sign you will conquer. Constantine sees a sign in the sky. It's not quite a cross, like it's depicted in some paintings. It uses the Greek letters chi and rho to make what looks like a capital P crossed with an X. Those two letters represent the first two of the word Christ. He sees this PX sign as a great blessing. Uh, in this sign you will conquer. So with the blessing of the Christian God, Constantine conquers Maximian. Constantine's empire now includes Italy and Northern Africa. And more importantly, he credits the Christian God for the victory. Now, if you've been to the Colosseum in Rome, you might have seen the big arch right next door, called, of course, the Arch of Constantine. It's dedicated to this battle. There's only one problem. Here's David Potter again. He never saw a vision in the sky. That story was invented by Eusebius. It is first attested in 336, uh, and then comes into Eusebius's account of the life of Constantine that was written after Constantine's death. If there's anything you need to know about classical scholars, it's that they don't always see eye to eye. It depends on where they want to get their information, from coins, sculptures, histories of the time, accounts of people after the events happened, David Potter prefers letters and speeches from Constantine's own era. So this part is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. 
Go with the historian Eusebius, David Potter, whatever you like. What we do know is that something happened. Constantine had a vision, an encounter. What is described then as divine mind before leading the invasion of Italy. Uh, we know it must have been a Christian vision that he had uh, because he brought a group of bishops with him. Um, and they're there with him um, immediately after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Whatever the order of events, Constantine became a Christian. Of sorts. He is really both and. Uh, the Christian God is his principal God, but he doesn't deny the fact that the other gods might well exist. He tries to be both Christian and pagan at the same time. Again, Gerald Bray. For example, in the year 321, he decreed that Sunday would be the official day of rest um, in the Roman Empire. But he did so uh, partly because it was the Christian day of rest, but also uh, because it was the day dedicated to the worship of the sun. Uh, and so he felt that you know pagan sun worshippers could also take that day off. Constantine was always straddling the line between Christianity and paganism. Here's David Potter with some examples. He builds churches in Constantinople, famously um, in Hagia Sophia, the original uh, Church of Holy Wisdom, the Church of the Twelve uh, Apostles, uh, but he leaves the temples open. But there's no blanket ban on paganism at all. Um, I think that Constantine had learned a very important lesson, which is that persecution simply doesn't work. It begs the question, did Constantine convert because he saw it as politically expedient for him? Here's Gerald Bray. Well, that's the issue, you see, probably not. Um, that it was politically expedient for him to get the support of the church because it was a widespread network, you know, a lot of powerful people and so on involved. And it was a support base because if he supported the church then his and his rivals didn't, um, well, you know, they would, he, he had a constituency, if you like, which would be on his side. So from that point of view, it was expedient. But to join the church might have caused problems because people who weren't Christians, and remember they were the majority um, uh, still, and, and most of the upper class and people in power and so on were not Christians, um, might have turned against him. Okay, so it probably wasn't just for politics because Christians were in the minority. Constantine seems to have had some better motives for his conversion. Constantine is the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity. See, he favored Christians. We can see this in a letter he wrote. Uh, and Constantine writes to them and says, well, you have everything you need to be a city. You have a city council. You have a good water supply. And by the way, I'm very pleased that you're all Christians. So he sees Christianity as a plus factor. Constantine marked the turning point from Christianity being tolerated at best and persecuted at worst to being encouraged. It was not yet the state religion, but the empire had certainly turned a corner. And when I say the empire, I mean the entire empire. Constantine eventually conquered the whole thing. He became the ruler of the entire Roman Empire, from Britain to Northern Africa, Spain to Turkey. We'll look deeper into Constantine's legacy in future episodes, from his involvement in the Council of Nicaea to the founding of important churches in early Christendom. For now, I want to take a moment to appreciate the gravity of the world's first Christian ruler. You can draw a line from Constantine straight to the power wielded by the Roman Catholic Church before the Renaissance, to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, even to how American presidential candidates talk about their faith in televised debates. 
The good news is that Christians no longer had any reason to hide. But there's always a catch, isn't there? Let's say that Christianity was mandatory now, like it would become shortly after Constantine's reign. If you had to act like a Christian in public by law, did that necessarily mean you were actually a Christian? Well, no, of course not. You might be going through the motions to save your own hide. So it would be nearly impossible to tell who was truly saved and who was just a good actor. Also, when the ruler of the land claims to be a Christian, everything that they do is attributed to Christ and his followers. I mean, this happens today. For an example from today, policies of separating immigrant parents from their children at the U.S. border raises questions from my friends of how evangelical leaders could stand for such behavior from the President of the United States, who claims to be a Christian. Like so many issues of faith, having a Christian leader of a country is a two-edged sword. The leader can bring blessing upon the land by following God's ways, or can sully the name of the Lord in the public square. They can end persecution, or if their actions are really evil masquerading as piety, they can set Christians up for future persecutions when the pendulum of public opinion has swung the other way. That whole struggle started with Constantine at the Milvian Bridge, and it continues with us today. Truce is a listener-supported podcast. Please help us out by throwing some money our way. I'd love to turn my whole attention to this project and bring more episodes on a regular basis. But that means cutting back on hours for my full-time job. I'm going to need your financial support to do that. If your business or ministry is interested in advertising on the podcast, or if you have some questions and comments, please drop me a line at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. You can find more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at trucepodcast. Leaving a positive review on iTunes makes a big difference. Subscribe to the show, find pictures and links, learn more about my novel Cradle Robber and my films Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, all at trucepodcast.com. Special thanks to David Potter for talking about his book Constantine the Emperor, as well as Gerald Bray, who has a book called Creeds, Councils, and Christ. I'm also indebted to Bruce Shelley's excellent church history in plain language. The Truce logo was created by Andy Huff, Editorial help was from Mike Demetrius and Nick Starin. Roy Browning is slowly teaching me about the art of marketing. God bless him. In the next episode, we'll take a look at some of Constantine's legacies for the world. I'm Chris Starin. This is Truce. <laughs>